This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com host. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like, it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations, because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Today is no exception. I'll let Elise fill you in on her extraordinary guest. All right, over to Elise. A former Goop editor who I love originally interviewed Dolly Chug for a Q&A on our site a few years ago. And I'm excited to share more of Dolly Chug's work today, which still feels particularly pertinent. Dolly is a psychologist and associate professor of management and organization at the Stern School of Business at NYU. She's also the author of The Person You Mean to Be, How Good People Fight Bias. Dolly studies how and why most of us, however well-intended, are still prone to racial and gender bias, as well as what she calls bounded ethicality. In my conversation with Dolly, she explains what we can do and must do about it. It's so fascinating, and her tools are so relevant. Particularly, I love the concept of some of us being heat and some of us being light, and also how when we think about the way we engage with people we disagree with, we shouldn't necessarily be focused on changing that person's mind, but the other 60%, the people who are watching and who are mutable. The key, I think, when we notice new things, possibly because norms have changed, the key is what do we do then when we notice it? And that's my campaign to get us to let go of being a good person and try to be goodish people. And goodish being the idea that we are always striving to learn and notice new things, that that's actually what being a good person is about. Let's get to my conversation. I think it's amazing that that so many people are showing an interest in this work. And I guess what I'm hopeful for is that we realize that this wasn't like a June 2020 thing. Like it's going to take time. And I just wrote a newsletter post about this. We can talk about it if you want. I'm calling it the 10% more rule about how to engage in this kind of work. Yeah. And you talk about it too. And at the end of the book, I think it's Jody Picot who's talking about just grace. It's like the grace just goes out the window for ourselves and for each other. And we all are such. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Like, I'm not sure that it's grace that I'm grace for ourselves is always good. And we all are working on that. But I think what he, what's here is almost like it's grace for the work that's already been done. Yeah. And those who've been doing it. Mm-hmm. So what I'm experiencing and what a lot of other people are experiencing is endless DMs, texts, tags, emails, calls from people wanting to do the work. Without little- doing the work? <laughs> Right. But, but but not necessarily realizing it isn't going to be solved in one text, one call. And that uncomfortable feeling that is prompting 
the call or the text or the DM, it's worth paying attention to that uncomfortable feeling. Is the desire to make that discomfort go away Mm -hmm. or is it to do the work? And, And it's a subtle distinction, but I think I know there's times when I'm just needing the satisfaction that I did something about something, whatever that is. Sometimes it's just, I need I need to make progress on a birthday gift for a family member. I just, I need to send that one email or order that one thing. And then I just have the satisfaction that I did something and I feel my blood pressure drop. And, and I think that's the distinction I'm trying to like grace for the people who are doing the work. And sometimes that means you're going to have to let your blood pressure sit a little high. Yeah. No, for sure. I mean, I think it's it is biological, right? Like our inability to feel uncomfortable, our inability to not react. And as you write about, it's like that deep desire for cookies, right? This the yes. affirmation that we're good people, that we haven't been bad people by being remiss, by not paying attention, by letting all of this continue unabated for so long. And it's in these moments I thought this was so fascinating when you were talking about the granting of our identities and how desperately we need that and and William Swan's work. And and you talk about the study where participants were even willing to pay for affirmation. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I love that. And I think it's the same study or it's a study I cite in the same part of the book where I love the finding that for a boost of self-esteem, we would rather have a boost of self-esteem over a favorite food, like a favorite dessert, time with a best friend, money, or a favorite sex act. It's like, really, (laughs) um, I I resonate with that. I mean, that dopamine hit, self-esteem is awesome. (laughs) Yeah. And then you think about it in the context of this work, which is, you know, what we're going to get into all of it and how to engage appropriately, particularly for people like me who are white. But it is, and I find this in myself all the time and have had to resist reaching out. And I think we see this, like the the performative part of it or that need for assurance or like you're a good person or you're doing a good job or that was the right email to, to send. And I think the work calls for the discomfort of not even, of not knowing that if it's the right thing to send, knowing it's better than sending nothing and knowing that you'll, you're not going to get a pat on the back. No one's going to say, you're, my wife friends might, but that I can't go out like seeking those cookies from black women and, and women of color that like, I'm doing a good job and I'm a good person. That's not what's happening. right? That can't happen right now. That's not part of it. Yeah. And it's such a natural reflex to want the cookie. Like I try to do in my work is normalize that reflex. I feel it. I think most humans feel it. That again, it's that desire for affirmation. So the reflex is normal, but but the impact is damaging on others. And I didn't really understand that. Like I had to learn that, frankly, from my students. I teach, my students are mostly 20 and 30 something year olds. And they've really taught me more than I've taught them. And one of them, Rachel Herniak, whose, whose story I share in the book, she really helped me see that a lot of the ways in which she uses a metaphor when you go to a funeral. She said, she, I think her father was a minister, and she remembers observing funerals and noticing that it seemed to be the reflex seemed to be when comforting the, let's say, the person who just lost their spouse. To It seemed like the person who just lost their spouse was comforting the, the, the visitor more than the other way around. Yep. And that, that really... Like once I heard that, I couldn't unhear it. And I started paying attention to the ways I was engaging with people. And boy, I heard it all the time. I was centering like how devastated I am or here are the ways in which I've done things donated to this or volunteer for that. And it's not that doing those things is bad. It's it's the classic parenting time and place type of thing. So the the cookie seeking is, is a great place to just start bringing some noticing. Exactly. And yeah, I I love that section where she just she talks about funerals as those moments of and and also just that need to be seen, even in the being seen for showing up, right? Like that validation. We want that validation and affirmation at every single level that the person was important to us, that this issue is important to us. And we, as you said, we sent, we desperately center ourselves. And I think just bring, as bringing the awareness of that is enough sometimes to be like, what am I, 
what is this? Like, why do I need this affirmation right now? Can I just be courageous and brave in this moment and just be here without needing to be seen? Yeah. Um, God, I love how you put that. Yeah. That's such a great way to think of it. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. The other thing that I thought was so helpful was the story that you begin and end with, the story of showing up for a Black Lives Matter <laughs> protest at FAO Schwartz. And I love how honest you are throughout and how you were like, can I accomplish my Christmas shopping at the same time? <laughs> That's how I, w- I would be like running through my list <laughs> while face down on the floor. But that you also talk about this idea of people who can bring the heat and withstand the heat and then the people who can bring the light. Because I think we also feel pressure to do all of these things simultaneously, whether it's in alignment with our gifts or not. Like we're all trying to play the whole field like a bunch of five-year-olds on a soccer field. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, the grapes, the bunch of grapes, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Can you explain that concept? Yeah, absolutely. And that this was, I learned a lot of things in the writing of the book and this was one of the big ones for me, the heat versus light. So the idea is that when we think of change in society and and when scholars who study historical changes in society, you could come up with two categories if you were to oversimplify, that some approaches meet people where they are, they pace it incrementally, it's built on awareness, education, and, and we'd call that light. It's education, it's persuasion. Heat are strategies that don't meet people where they are. They We push past where they are. It's uncomfortable. It's disruptive by design. It's challenging. It's angry, perhaps. It's protests might be categorized that way. Disruptive comments in a meeting, what's perceived as disruptive comments mm-hmm. in a meeting that sort of take us off task might be perceived as heat. And I personally, like the example I use in the book is that I'm the kind of person who like, so I've been married, let's say almost 20 years, and I'm still like quietly, passive aggressively rearranging the dishwasher rather than just (laughs) like talking out like our dishwasher differences. So you might guess that I am more of a light-based person than a heat-based person. And when I started writing the book, I had written a draft and I shared it with a friend who I really, whose work I really trust, Christina Olson, and she gave me great feedback on the book and said, by the way, I, I think the Black Lives Matters protest I write about in the book was in 2014, I believe, and I'm showing her this draft in 2016. She said, I don't think they're gonna be very happy with how you described that protest at the beginning of the book. And I was like, what? No, my ver- my intention is that it was a love letter to those protesters. It was saying, I wish I was better at this. I wish... I was less afraid. I wish that this was a path I could, a part of the field I played in more. That's what I was trying to say. And she said, no, what it sounded like you said is all you protesters, you go do your thing. And us light people, I don't think I was using the word light at that point, but we're going to, we're going to just meet people where they are. And I was like, oh, shoot, she's right. That was definitely Mm -hmm. like not intentional, but probably what I was saying The problem with that is that those historians of social movements, what they find is that social movements that rely on light and don't have much heat, or those that rely on heat and don't have much light, do not make as much progress as those that have both light and heat. We need both. Yeah. And so for people like me, who maybe like, you know, my temperament, my skills are more light based. Good. That's the part of the field I should play in. But I should be cheering on the folks playing in the part of the field where it's I'm, I'm all the metaphors, at least. I, I need an editor, <laughs> but all of them. I'm, I'm going to use them all. Grapes is coming next. So we need to be cheering on our teammates that are doing the heat and vice versa. What we tend to do is like critique light critiques the heat and the heat critiques the light. And that probably doesn't serve either well. Yeah, well, I think it gets back to the ways that we're comfortable, personally comfortable with both change and communication. And then we try to push our preferences on everyone else. Like it would just be so much more effective if we could accomplish this in this way, etc. And I think it is the combination. It's the sort of the, the being shaken, that rough, the, the, the sort of awakening that's required 
And then it's, okay, now we have to figure out how to move this down the field. But yeah. it's not going to – no one's going to be moving anything down the field unless they're shaken awake. And I thought, too, that the section where you're talking about Felicia and the online community and just the idea of Black Twitter in general and engaging or understanding and listening to those conversations without rushing to – participate or defend or advise people on a better way to talk about things, which, and this idea that this trigger word divisive, right? That black women in particular, when they tell their stories and share their experiences, we tend to gaslight them by telling them that they're being divisive instead of saying that is your reality and I need to hear your story. That's right. That's right. Exactly. That is your reality. And I need to hear your story. Just because it's not raining where I am doesn't mean it's not raining where you are. Yeah. Yeah. I thought that was really like that was really beautiful, beautifully said that this idea that if you're in the sun and I'm in the rain, I think this is Felicia. Why is it divisive for me to point out this difference? Exactly. And and I'll add one more thing to that, which is that my hypothesis, I'm not a scholar of social movements, so I haven't sat down and analyzed this data, but here's my hypothesis. If light-based methods change minds, but heat-based methods change systems. Mm. And and I think we're, what we're hearing a lot about in recent days and weeks is the importance of changing both minds yeah. and systems. So that's another way to think about why it's so important to have heat and light. And so the labeling comments as divisive or tone policing or saying, that's not, I don't think you're going to convince anybody that way. Guess what? Maybe that's not the goal. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spot in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com host. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. You know, I was interviewing Ibram X. Kendi last week, yes. and he was saying, I thought it was such a powerful part of his book where he, essentially he's like, this, there's this myth that everyone needs to be on the same page for change to happen. And that's not how it change happens historically. It happens. And then everyone gets on board and is like, yeah, why wasn't this how it was? I listened to your conversation, Dr. Kendi, and I thought it was excellent. And I, I especially appreciated the way he articulated that point. Yeah. And so these two things can happen concurrently, but you see it. It's happening, probably not at the rate at which it needs to, but that the demonstrations and protests are like it it is happening. The change is starting to be reflected in policy, not as widespread as it needs to be. And then the work can continue of getting people on the same page, that that movable 60 percent who will be affected by norms and not that silent majority who are observing what's happening, not stepping in yet, but wanting to adhere to their idea of being a good person. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. We, most of us are in that middle 60 most of the time, that's just mathematically. And that's where we're going to be swayed by new norms, new systems, new laws, new traditions, all of that will move us. I think we've seen it in gay rights in mm-hmm. the last decade. Like there have been a lot of systemic changes, and one could argue that's led to the attitudinal changes. Yeah. I want to specifically talk about those people, but I think this part this particular section, it's funny. Yesterday I was talking to my brother and we both went to a, a sort of prestigious East Coast boarding school that's had like all of those schools had its fair share of significant issues around yeah. assault and protection of girls on campus. And and we were just talking about why that 
was like how that was perpetuated for so many decades. And I was like, and then it's funny, I hadn't gotten to the section yet, but it was it was normal. It was like for this idea, this was, it was an acceptable way of behavior. And when you have a group of kids and they're all peer attached and they're not adult attached and they're in this environment and they see the, this norm is established, they all fall. It's pathetic, of course, but it's clearly how we're built. Everyone falls in line. And so you need people to change the precedent. You have to like, in order to change the behavior. And I thought that this part of your book where you talk about additional research shows that the degree to which people act in prejudice ways is highly correlated to the degree to which they think it is okay in the eyes of others to act in prejudice ways. If they think it is the norm to laugh at certain jokes or say certain things, they will. If they think it is not okay, they will not. The implication of this tight correlation is that a change in norms could lead to a change in behavior. If we signal that it is not okay to say or do biased things, that may be enough to change some behaviors. Absolutely. And that ties back to what you brought up a moment ago about the middle 60, that sometimes what we need to do is less about if you're on Facebook or Instagram or wherever and you're having, there's some sort of battle going on these issues and you think you've got to persuade the person you're in battle with. What I recommend is actually you need to make it clear you don't agree and that it's problematic but then rather than the back and forth being aimed at trying to convince, if, if that's possible, the individual in that moment, I, I would say, write your comments thinking about this, this middle 60 who's reading all this and not commenting. Yeah. They're listening. They're reading. And as soon as you put that counter normative comment where you break the streak of 20 people saying something that's now it's looking like a norm that we hate protesters or, or whatever the, the comments are. And then as soon as you say, thank you so much for letting me know there was a protest going on. I'm sorry, I missed it. Let me know about the next one. You've <laughs> broken the momentum there. And then what I've noticed is all of a sudden you see a bunch of likes on your comment. That tells me the middle 60 was sitting there looking for someone to kind of blow the wind the other way. Mm-hmm. There's a lot. Yes. So there's a lot we can do to sway norms. There's a lot of norms. A lot of us look back at TV shows we used to watch and we're like, ah, how did we think that was okay? Those jokes, those fake accents, those all white cast. Like wh- how did that not even cross our mind? How did I not think it was weird when I was, when 1990, graduating from college, or maybe it was 94, graduating from business school, but I remember some year, a long time ago, like going to job interviews that were in people's hotel rooms. How yeah. did I think that was okay as a 20-something-year-old woman? I don't think I thought about it. The key, I think, when we notice new things, possibly because norms have changed, the key is what do we do then? when we notice it. And that's my campaign to get us to let go of being a good person and try to be goodish people. And yeah. goodish being the idea that we are always striving to learn and notice new things. That that's actually what being a good person is about. It's not assuming that we're frozen in time, that you would have known when you were a teenager, a peer attached teenager, that you would have noticed things, the same things you would notice now, or that even a month ago, you would have noticed the same things you're noticing now. What we're doing as a goodish person is just assuming there's things we didn't notice before that we're noticing now. Maybe someone helped us see it. Maybe it was heat. Maybe it was light. But in that moment, as a goodish person, what can I learn from it? Yeah. And I think that the the focus on, because I think that there's, as you say, you call them the easy 20. These are the 20% who are ready to go. These are the people who are engaged, learning, messing up and stumbling all over the place as is as you say it's spectrum there's no sort of like i have arrived i will be perfect i will always say the right thing and then there's this persuadable 60 and then that you call them the stuck 20 and you that they're that this group lacks both internal and external motivation to control prejudice and that the antidote is not to be silent it's to say something but then to not waste your energy you're not going to change their minds but then to focus all of our attention directly or indirectly on the way that we engage with this middle group. And it's interesting too, because you talk about, and I think that this, it probably brings up, and I think this is a really important distinction because you say 
when we're gentle with this group, with the 60, does this mean we are conceding to white fragility in order to create psychological safety for them? And you write like somewhat, but that's the right use of our ordinary privilege. Can you explain that? Like how it's my job as a white woman, white woman to get those people on the bus without shaming them, being using grace, being gentle, not admonishing them, not suggesting that they're not good people. But that is not the work of a black friend. That is my job. Can you explain that? Sure. Thank you. And thanks for that really nice summary of the 20-60-20 rule. By the way, I have repurposed that rule from my consulting days when Susan Anunzio coined that rule for mm. organizations going through change of all kinds, new accounting system or whatever. So we all hold lots of identities, right? So if right now we're just, just say, okay, what are the identities you hold, Dolly? I'd be like, I'm a woman. I'm I, My gender identity is female. I'm Indian American. I'm a mother. I'm a wife. I'm a professor, I'm an author, I spout off, I'm Hindu, I've got a few different identities. So those identities were right top of mind for me. They were easy. They're part of how I navigate the world. Now let's ask ourselves the same question, except let's flip it. What identities did I not talk about? Oh, let me think about that. I, I didn't talk about the fact that I'm straight. You know, that why? Because that wasn't top of mind for me. It doesn't have to be top of mind for me. It, it doesn't, the world is orchestrated for straight people. I don't have to think twice about whether mm -hmm. to bring my spouse to a work event. I don't have to worry about holding his hand in public because there's all sorts of safety accorded you if you're straight that is not accorded you if you're not straight, that you've got to be cautious and decode the environment you're in and protect yourself. Those identities that you think about less, like me with my straightness, are probably the identities where I have blind spots, where I'm not that in tune with what it's like to navigate not being straight. And Debbie Irving uses this metaphor of headwinds and tailwinds, like tailwinds, you don't really feel the tailwinds. When, you're, when you go out for a run and you have a good tailwind, you just think you ate your Wheaties, you are killing it that day. <laughs> it's the headwind that we feel. So this, my straightness becomes my tailwind. It, it's the place where I'm not going to see the ways in which people who don't share my identity are having to navigate. That's what we mean by privilege and ordinary privilege. The ordinary part is the fact that it's just such an ordinary part of my existence. It's just built into the world in which I live. But here's the the little, there's good news associated with that. People often like hear the word privilege and they think, oh, shame, bad. The good news is because that identity uh, I hold brings these tailwinds with it, what studies show is it also brings influence. Mm -hmm. So if someone tells a racist joke, what studies show is that if a black person says, hey, that was a racist joke, versus a white person says, hey, that was a racist joke, even in controlled environments where you control for everything else, the white person is taken more seriously than the black person in that moment. And there's other studies in different contexts that basically show that same finding, that there's some influence that comes from not being in the affected group and not being invested in the outcome and speaking up. Yeah. So if we back all this up and put it together... Identities I think about least also are the identities where I probably have blind spots. There's something I'm not noticing. What am I not noticing? I'm probably not noticing what the headwind is like. And I'm probably also not noticing that because I have the tailwind, I have a little bit of influence, not to speak over people or for people or, or to center myself, but to also not be silent. This is a moment where whether you go to light or whether you go to heat, the idea is to go to something, not darkness, not to be indifferent, not to be quiet, not to be neutral. Yeah. And it also speaks to the fact that we desperately need the people who have benefited the most from the patriarchy to step up to help us unwind the patriarchy. And that's white men, because they're the ones who have, in our culture, the most privilege of all. And they're the ones who, you know, that this research just always, and I've seen it several times, but it's always so stunning that diversity promoting female and non-white executives were rated worse by their bosses than their non-diversity promoting female and non-white counterparts. 
white and male diversity promoters were rated no differently than their non-diversity promoting white and male counterparts. So in short, only white male managers and white male managers could hire someone who looked like them and not take a hit for it. So that when women and people of color are promoting diversity, it affects us negatively. And when white men are promoting the same, it has no impact. That's right. That's right. And I, I think that's research by Stephanie Johnson and David Heckman, if I remember right. I hope I'm remembering. And so, yes, there is a real space. And again, I think this is an opportunity. I think many white men have felt they didn't have a place in this conversation, that they this wasn't their their place to be. And what the research says is when we legitimize that there is a place for you in this conversation, white men are actually, many white men are wanting to contribute. They don't know that they can have the impact they can have. They may not see the ways in which the tailwinds are have been benefiting them. But when invited in and when this becomes more visible, again, this is where a space is a really good moment for goodish versus good. The, I, I'm seeing more and more people stepping up. I'm actually uh, really heartened by that. And so, and that's the Dale Miller concept of psychological standing, that when we, even if we may feel outright raged, if it doesn't affect us directly, we don't know if we have the psychological standing to engage. And so there are specific ways that you can make it clear that committee, that equity and inclusivity committee, we need, we need all the white men to show up and participate. Like you have to make it clear that people do have psychological standing, right? That's right. That's right. All genders welcome, all races welcome, all ethnicities welcome. If in fact that's true, there's also affinity groups where that's not the intent. But yes, sometimes we have to make that explicit. And what studies show is that psychological standing does lead to more people being interested. Can you talk us through the when speaking of affinity groups or any situation like Black Twitter, where you if you're not black and you're wanting to understand and listen, can you talk through the guidelines for how to hold yourself appropriately? Sure, sure. Yeah, the way I think about those occasions is uh, you're a guest in someone's home. You're meeting your future in-laws for the first time. Like the kinds of, most of us in those situations listen more than we talk we self-regulate. If you were in a coffee shop and there was a conversation going on a table next to you, nine times out of 10, we don't like insert ourselves. I mean, maybe this is a New York thing. I don't know. <laughs> maybe other parts of the country are like, no, we're more friendly. Where I am, you wouldn't necessarily just jump into someone else's conversation. You would, you might eavesdrop. You might, hey, I'm curious. I'm going to see where this one goes, but you wouldn't insert yourself. And I think that's the appropriate mindset to bring when you're in a space that's an affinity group or a social media space, a hashtag, Black Twitter. No one's asking for your input. No one's saying you can't be there, but this is a space that was built for people who have something that's shared, experience, background. There might be a lot of heterogeneity and viewpoint and specific experiences, but there's something in common that has brought that group together. And so if that's not what you share in common. Your role is to eavesdrop, not to intervene. Yeah. And I thought this was such a powerful sentence because you're talking about that and then the context of of so many of us are trying to move from being believers into builders. And you write, we need to keep asking questions when there is consensus in the data or in the room by resisting the urge to assume that the majority speaks for the minority. And I think we have that, you know, we're such, we're so good as a white person, so good at centering ourselves, right? And, and saviorism and this, I'm going to go in and fix this. I'm going to go, I know the issue. I get it. I'm going to help. And it's, again, it's not from a bad intent. It's just, that's our instinct. And then it goes to what we were talking about at the beginning, like what I need to do something right now to make these bad feelings go away inside of me. You talk about saviorism, how to recognize it how to participate and engage and do the thing, apply the light and apply the heat without, again, making it about affirmation or cookies or or any of those other things that sort of steal the attention or the energy back towards yourself? Yeah, absolutely. Well, first, just acknowledge that this is there's nothing wrong with that reflex, that desire for the cookie. It's, it's a real thing. Cookies are um, delicious. 
I mean, what's better than a cookie? Yeah, the, the metaphor is, a, is is apropos. And affirmation is also wonderful. There's nothing wrong with affirmation, but as in all things, being addicted to the cookies or being having it be the, the, the staple of our motivation as opposed to the, the sort of dessert, that's, that's the challenge. Yeah, the savior mode is this, I, I didn't coin that phrase, I, I don't remember if I know who, I don't think I know who did, but you often hear about savior narrative, like in movies or books or, and I think it's also when I describe it as a savior mode in our minds, it's something that kind of, I don't know, there's always like this little Hollywood scene in my head where I save the day and, or I get the pat on the back or I get the cookie. And I don't think I'm alone in that. The research, decades of research in psychology say a lot of us feel that way. I, I share a story in the book about, I have a student, I had a student, he's graduated, who I had mentored for many years and I'd been helpful in him graduating successfully and going on and doing terrific things. And a first-generation college student, and like many first-generation college students, was navigating some challenges with that. And I was helpful in navigating those challenges. So it stunned me when I found out accidentally that something had fallen through financially and with his housing, and he was sleeping in the library. Hmm. Like, not power napping. Like, we have a 24-7 library at NYU, and or we did, uh, pre-pandemic and and that's where he was staying and what happened in the moment after I heard that was what I'd like to say happened was I had this like flash of empathy and interest and curiosity in his choice to withhold that from me but what actually went through my head uh, is (laughs) a vision of all the ways I could have solved that problem. Like I know people who have extra rooms and extra couches. I have an extra room and an extra couch. I could have been the hero of that story. I could have fixed that. Why didn't he let me fix that? Mm-hmm. And I can see how there's the same coin, two sides, but they're not. Like the, just the fact that he didn't tell me tells you something about how I was approaching my interactions with him. Who wants yeah. to be saved? Do any of us really want to be saved by someone else? Don't we all want to be the hero of our own stories? Yes, very much. Very much. And so that was a little bit of an eye-opener for me of, huh, he could have told me and he didn't. That tells me something. And by the way, he solved the problem himself. He did not need me to be a hero either. So I think what we're looking for in ourselves is just just tuning into where that motivation sits. And when we don't get the response back that gives us the little like the boost we're looking for, the cookie, what, what's, if, if you're feeling a little let down, that's a sign that you're cookie seeking. Yeah. And it's so interesting, like that, I've been thinking about this a lot, just sort of that desire to save, right? Like desire to save people who are perfectly capable of saving themselves, our desire to tell other people what to do or how to live or what's right for them, what drives that. And if in a way, it's like we do anything to not be in our own bodies, in our own lives, working on being good people, right? Like we do anything to short circuit that through cookies. It's like such a perfect metaphor, but it's in doing that, you're denying someone as you said, the ability to everyone, we're all perfectly capable of saving ourselves outside of infants. And it's just perpetuating that same narrative of being, of being in other people's business in a way that is just not helpful and a distract, sorry, a distraction from what we need to do for ourselves. And, and I guess that brings me to sort of my final question, which is around that idea of sort of moral identity and this need that we have to be good people and the fact that when we look back at history and there are always the heroes and the villains and the good and the bad and we have such a profound need to be so binary Mm. and the way that we look back at Lincoln or Martin Luther King Jr. or anyone it's like we just lose all nuance we lose all sort of all the humanity goes away and all the complications And 
Do you think that that's because that's how we're wired or because we've been fed this history that makes it seem like there's no middle ever and that you are either good or bad, you're on the right side of history or the wrong side of history, and that in a way creates such profound threat for us? Or is it biological? Like, where do you think it comes from? Yeah, we certainly do love our simple stories. And it's, I actually don't know, like the evolutionary work or the biological work on where that love comes from. For my next book, I actually have a chapter called We Love Our Simple Stories. And I'm, I'm trying to learn more about that right now. But the binary thinking you're describing absolutely is a challenge. Martin Luther King, Dr. Martin Luther King at the time when he was alive was viewed as heat. And Mm -hmm. now he's viewed as light. Muhammad Ali was viewed as heat. Now he's viewed as light. And this binary thinking also gets us, it traps us in not seeing the longer time frame, like seeing a time horizon, like when you talk about the right side or wrong side of history, it makes it difficult for us to also see the bigger picture. So we lose the nuance and we lose the, the bigger picture. I think, so I agree, it's awfully hard to do the work of looking at ourselves and exploring, am I a good person or am I not? But I would actually say it's also very liberating. Like my personal experience of, they say all research is me search. And I think everything (laughs) I study and everything I write about, about other people's research and all the interviews I include in the book, I'm also trying to apply to my own life, trying to navigate these issues. And what I have found is that I'm often mortified by myself. Like, how did I confuse those two black people for each other? They look like nothing alike. They're like, foot different in height. Obviously, that was ridiculous that I made that mistake. Or, you know, I say something, my my kids love calling me out on like sexist things I say, like that one happens all the time. So while I'm mortified by it, it's gratifying to see it and notice it and be like, ah, I've got that goodish mindset, that growth mindset, and be like, okay, I'm going to work on that. Learning is actually great. We were, we are born learners, right? Like humans love to learn. And I think if we can take that frame that we are a work in progress for the rest of our lives, we are a work in progress. This won't, we won't need that binary as much. Like we can use the, the passage of time and our innate love of learning as an opportunity that you get a new phone. What are you doing? You get a new phone. You're like, oh, I got to figure out how to do this and how to do that. Oh, let me go find a young person. <laughs> Let's get them to show me this. And we don't assume that just because I knew how to use the phone I got three years ago, that I know how to use the phone I have now. And I would say the same is true on these issues. We shouldn't assume that just because we felt like a good person three years ago or three weeks ago, that we don't need to update our knowledge or that we don't have the opportunity to notice new things or that we can't ask a young person, what are they seeing that I'm not? That binary is, maybe it's a natural place our mind goes to, but it's also, I think, really exhilarating to let it go. Yeah. And to teach our children different. I have little kids, and but there is also such, there's still this good guy, bad guy idea. And... And it doesn't serve them because I think then they then just trap themselves in that as well. And I get that we need simple stories, but, and I know it's not a huge focus of your book, but I do think that the part about how by not having these, I mean, that was staggering. I'd never heard of the research where psychologists ask children ages five to 10 for an explanation of why the first 43 presidents were white. So, and this was before Obama, 26% of the children believed it was illegal for a black person to be president. Which is crazy, but I feel like our kids are empathic sponges, right? They are observing, and then we try to give them these very tersh, very simple explanations in a way that's not cannot be serving them. Yeah, you're right. And what's really interesting is when you think about the art that we're drawn to, the movies we love, and the the books we love, they're never simple caricatures, right? Even like superhero movies. Like the, the reason we love those superhero movies is the Spider-Man is very human and has a journey and Wonder Woman and there's the backstory and the origin story. And we like nuance. We like flawed heroes. We like three-dimensional people. 
And so there may be binaries may be attractive to the sort of heuristic part of our brain. Mm -hmm. There's probably truth to that. There's probably studies that show that. But it's also true that we're bored by that. And absolutely. Yeah. But I think it also and I but I think it somehow lingers and traps us and that there it leaves no room for evolution or grace. You know what we were talking about before this idea that we are movable and we will evolve and our opinions will change. And hopefully our politicians and the people who are making these decisions for us that they're evolving and changing, too, and which we really never allow for by holding people hostage by their voting records. But we have to make it safer in a way for people to adopt that growth mindset and to lean in to change and that their journey will be, they'll look back and remark at sort of the moments when they were good and the moments when they were not and still be able to love themselves. Absolutely. And you know what I have found that each of us can do to create that, that willingness in others is make our own learning visible. And what I mean by that is be willing to talk about your own journey. If I'm willing to talk about the fact that I consider myself a feminist, I consider I'm raising two feminist daughters, I married a husband who I believe has feminist attitudes. I don't know if he self-labels that way, but to me, he's a feminist. And yet I received an email from a student saying, why did you assign that sexist reading for class? And then when I looked at the reading, I realized she was right. Even though I'd read it a million times, I had never, again, back to noticing, like I just glossed over that stuff. Like it didn't, that was just the way the world I grew up in. So when I tell other people that story, it it legitimizes the learning process. We're not trying to legitimize the mistake or the blind spot, but we're trying to legitimize and make visible the learning to others. And what I have found is when I'm willing to do that work publicly, when I mean publicly, it could be with your neighbor or your family members or whoever, it invites other people into that learning process as well. And I don't know if if we have time, but I'd love to share this story that I end the book with, which I I think is an excellent example of it. Many of us can remember learning about the civil rights movement in the 60s, including the lunch counter sit-ins, the Greensboro Four College first-year students who at a Woolworths lunch counter, and we'll uh, we'll do a quick little for the younger listeners. <laughs> Woolworths lunch counters were like <laughs> were like Panera. <laughs> if you have Panera where you live, but yeah, it was just basically quick, casual uh, type of food. And these four young black men, the lunch counters were segregated, and they made a decision that they were going to sit at the stools and asked to be served. They knew they wouldn't be. And the promise they made each other is they wouldn't get out of their seats. They would wait and didn't matter if until they were dragged out or arrested or killed, they weren't going to leave their seats. And that's what they did. And then they came back the next day with some more friends and with some more friends. And before we knew it, we had tens of thousands of people across the country sitting in lunch counters, all started by these four young men, 18 years old at the time. One of them, Joe McNeil, I've had the good fortune of uh, getting to know, of becoming friends with, having him speak to my students and interview him for the book. The first time he came to speak to my students, when I we hadn't gotten to know each other well yet, I was so honored he was there. And I was uh, so terrified my students like wouldn't understand the gravity that we had a civil rights icon with us. Uh, Woolworths, by the way, did later that year desegregate their lunch counters nationally. This is in 1960. Nelson Mandela would say the Greensboro Four inspired him. So he's truly an icon. And I was like hoping my students were in the 21st century seeing that. They did. They totally got it. He was great. They were great. We get to the Q&A. They ask really thoughtful questions. It's inspiring. And we have one last question. And the student gets up there and says, General McNeil, thank you for your courage. Thank you for your service, sir. What are your views on gay rights? And Elise, he stumbled, like he stumbled. It wasn't a great moment. And I was like, and that's it. We're out of time. (laughs) (laughs) That was the last question. And I didn't know him well, and I'm not proud of this, but I didn't say anything. And I invited him to come back the following year. And again, he came back, he gave beautiful remarks, told the same kind of cute dad jokes. 
And we were about to go to Q&A and he said one thing I'm looking, words to the effect of something like, I'm really looking forward to this Q&A because one thing I've noticed is I'm learning a lot from young people and it's making me think differently about things. And I really am interested to hear your questions. And he, it became clear that he was talking about gay rights. And so a few years later, I still didn't have the guts to say anything, but a few years later, we'd gotten to know each other better. I interviewed him for the book and I started to bring up that moment, thinking I was going to have to elaborate to remind him on that juxtaposition. And instead, he, I started to bring it up and he immediately was like, oh yeah, I remember that. And I was like, oh, what do you remember about that? Because I remember that too. And he's, what I remember is I had a lot to learn. What I remember mm. is that I grew up in a time with certain ideas and I, I didn't know and I can do better. And he essentially said in so many words, he didn't use these words, but what I heard him say was basically, I'm a goodish person. What he did say was this work of being a good person is sometimes hard. And so here we have this man who I think at the time was in his 70s. He's a civil rights icon. There's actual museums and statues <laughs> built for him. There's like, if you go to the American Museum of Natural History in DC, there's like a whole like wing or exhibit about the Greensboro Four. I found it so powerful that he's still learning. And so if he's not done learning after all he's done for us, then I surely am not done learning. And I think that's that tells us what's possible. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Dolly Chug. I hope you'll pick up a copy of her book, The Person You Mean to Be. And for more from Dolly, sign up for her monthly newsletter at dollychug.com slash newsletter. Chug is spelled C-H-U-G-H. The newsletter includes her actionable, evidence-based advice for combating racism and bias. It's a five-minute read on the last Sunday of every month that's it for today's episode. If you have a chance, please rate and review. Hit subscribe to keep up with new episodes and pass it along to a friend. Thanks again for joining. I hope you'll come back for more. And in the meantime, you can check out goop.com slash the podcast.